November the 6th, 2016, lecture discussion number 260 on the book of Romans. And before we trudge back into Revelation 17, which is this list here, and Daniel 7, Daniel 2, Revelation 13, right? That's what that list primarily is. I I need to make the internet audience, uh, um, excuse me, the vast internet audience, vast being a relative term of our current uh, situation and challenges. Uh, As most of you are aware, we sent out an email, but um, we operate parasitically and cooperatively with New Grace Church. This is their facility. Uh, With respect to this, we're here in this occasionally unstable building because of their permission, and mostly we are a barnacle. What we do provide is um, audio engineering expertise and live sound equipment for the facility, which is a very extensive um, proposition, and the equipment that uh, Cliffside has is of uh, very high quality and, and relatively new equipment. We also give them the dumpster. And if the dumpster goes away, neither church can operate. That dumpster is pretty important. Anyway, Thursday morning, the building was burglarized, and though the culprits were not criminal masterminds, as I mentioned in the pregame, they stopped to eat uh, ice cream and anything they could find in the cupboards downstairs. They managed to locate the uh, cliffside digital mixing board. It was a Tascam DM3200. And it was fully technically enhanced in all the bells and the whistles uh, that are necessary that uh, would provide us the opportunity to do all kinds of things, including um, um, the recording of high-quality recording. It was capable of, pr- of producing a, the highest-quality CD recording that you could buy commercially. So it was a very good piece of equipment, and they found it, and they naturally removed it without consideration for the analog connections. The wiring harnesses, they just ripped them all loose. Now, they didn't do that on the Tascam. They were very careful. They pulled those off carefully. But on the Mackie, we have an, an old Mackie analog board that's also here that is used mostly by uh, New Grace. They, they just ripped the wiring off the back of it. They stole all the uh, all of the transmitter receiver for the wireless microphone system. So New Grace has no microphones now. The only ones they have are the ones that uh, we'll let them use. They're completely gone. They have no in-ear monitors. Uh, so they've got lots of problems to deal with, just as we do. So, to say the least, Right now, Cliffside is operating on a diminished level, and um, the digital recording is gone. Uh, We'll need to replace that and reinstall. Uh, We do have that equipment, a redundancy for that, but it's going to take us a while to get it reinstalled. It's not compatible with the Mackie. And it's something that uh, we're especially equipped to do. Uh, That's not the problem. The problem is, is that we're slow. And it's going to take us a while. Slow is a relative term. And in this case, we're even more slow than you think slow means. And uh, so we're going to appreciate your dispensation, you folks on the Internet. This is going to be a trial for us. And uh, we respectfully ask for a temporary exemption from uh, our Internet obligations, certainly with respect to the quality. Uh, It wasn't that good a quality as it was. We were attempting to improve it. But now it's going to revert back to um, 1960s telephone in all likelihood. We don't even have the ability to send out CDs now. We're, we're at 
minimal operating systems. So it's a big blow again to our capabilities. Uh, we'll do what we can, we'll provide what we can, but uh, it's going to be a couple of months. Okay, no big deal other than that. When we last left our merry band of traveling heroes, that's you guys, um, you were wondering, you were staring at this board, wondering what the fearless leader was thinking, that's me. Seven heads, I can't even find it all, seven heads, uh, iron mixed with clay, uh, ancient of days, uh, a crazy woman harlot, a scarlet beast, an iron tooth beast, the mark of the beast, 666, three other beasts, not only the iron tooth beast, but Daniel has four other beasts that he wants you to have interest in or at least have knowledge of a, a, a plucked winged lion, a lopsided bear, a four-headed leopard. Nebuchadnezzar has an image. He, again, he's got toes, ten toes on the image. The toes are mixed with clay. There's ten horns involved. There's ten kings involved. We figured out that last week that the iron beast of, of Daniel is the sixth head of John's Revelation chapter 17. The scarlet beast is not just the seventh head of the seven headed of the seven heads, but it's also the eighth head, and we don't even have eight, eight heads. And I got a red dragon, a lamb, and everyone's fighting over the beloved city Jerusalem. That's where we're at, and uh, who could blame you if you threw down your swords and ran for the buffet table? It is not not for the uh, this is not seeker sensitive, not contemporary. And uh, that pretty much the throwing and running describes my phone calls that I got this week. But I, I have to say this, I am pleased with um, everyone is still battling, still swinging, trying to get through it. Progress is, is actually being made. What is this? What does the Bible call what I just rattled off? It calls it wisdom. It is a wisdom status report. This is how you can say to yourself, do I have wisdom, yes or no? Am I somebody whose lights are on, who can see what's going on around me? Um, this country is in a great deal of trouble. There's no question about it. What we are seeing in front of us is, is dramatically a degradation that cannot be ignored. Do I have wisdom? If Russia makes a move into the Middle East, can I figure out what's going on in a, from a biblical perspective? And God says, this is wisdom. If you know what this is, then you are the wise. Uh, conversely, if you don't know, oops. The angel said to the apostle, I'm sorry, impossible, more medicine. The angel that said that, the angel said to the Apostle John, listen, understanding Revelation 17, 9, which makes you go to Daniel 2, which makes you go to Daniel 7, which makes you go to Daniel 9, and Daniel 10, and Daniel 12, and Revelation 13, and Revelation 14. Understanding the Revelation 11, understanding Revelation and Daniel, let's just tie it together. If you understand Revelation and Daniel, then you are one of the wise. And you would think that every church would be doing nothing but this in the time that we're around today. 
So the angel tells John, this is wisdom. And he, that angel knew that John would have to go to Daniel 2, 7, 9, and 12 to solve what the angel was about to say in Revelation 17, 1 through 18. And in my opinion, I rattle off a few others. This is also Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 28, Genesis 14, Genesis 19. All of these pieces have to be accumulated in order to figure out this list on the book. And it's not easy. Daniel 10 uh, describes something that Daniel himself saw. He saw a certain man dressed in linen. And John the Apostle also saw the same man. I believe that Abraham saw the certain man dressed in linen. Daniel 10.5 is where he sees him. John Revelation 1-17 through 17 is where John sees him. Genesis 19 is when Abraham sees the certain man dressed in linen. And John and Daniel respond the same. Both are told by the, the, to write and understand what they saw and heard and to write it and record it for those who come after them because these are the mysteries that are wisdom. This is what the certain man says to Daniel. Those who are wise shall shine. Shine like the brightness of the expanse or the firmament, or if you wish, the heavens or the atmosphere. Or in this case, what would be the, the, uh, the expanse between the third heaven and the earth's atmosphere. So where the stars or the galaxies are. I made a comment the other day. How many galaxies have they figured out we have now? Two trillion. And how many stars are in each galaxy by average? Hundreds of thousands of millions. That's a lot of material. Why is there so much material? Why did God make something this incredibly, the size of it? The, the astrophysics community thinks the universe is uh, infinite. It is not. It's easy to demonstrate it is not. But it is absolutely, unimaginably massive. Why? Why did God do that? It's also expanding away from a central location. That's another question. Galactocentricity. We won't do that today because it's going to be hard enough to stay awake as it is. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the expanse or the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So he's saying to you in Daniel 12, 3, the wise shine. They're different. And the certain man clothed in linen said this to Daniel. Those who are wise shall shine and they will turn many to righteousness. So again, it's the wise who shine, and Proverbs 4, 5 says, get wisdom, get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and in all you do, get wisdom, Proverbs 4, 7. So, that's what we're doing. And here we are, in Revelation 17, 9, this is described as the mind that has wisdom. So at some time in your life, if you want to be one of the wise, you will have to sit down and read and study Revelation 17.9. And likewise, Revelation 13.18.
And if you can solve it, if you can solve Revelation 13.18 and Revelation 17.9, then you move from the unwise to the wise. Now what will that mean for you? How will that change you? It's going to change you. You can't be changed. Uh, if you, I'm sorry, you will not be the same when you are wise. Not only will you know things that very few people know, but it will, it will make you a different person. Will you go around telling people how wise you are? No, you won't. You know why? Because you'll be wise. <laughs> now, I, I often ask myself, I say to myself, self, I say, uh, you've made a, successfully made a fine mess. That is a, almost an incoherent mess, Ollie. It's only funny to people who know who Ollie is, which is two of you. <laughs> Who knows who Laurel is? Don't raise your hand here ever. But it's a mess. I know it's a mess. And so I've got this debris sitting here. Allegorically speaking, of course. This week, uh, Supper Dave and Bill the call, uh, Bill the cow uh, called during the week and uh, led me, led me to go, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and address some of their concerns here. So the next line of questioning, if you will, if you're keeping score at home, blame these two guys. I'm going to combine the mystery of the beloved city today and the mystery of the seventh and the eighth head. The seventh head that is also the eighth. The Antichrist is called the seventh head of the seven heads. And as I said in Daniel, four beasts are come out to God raises up four beasts for Daniel to watch. And we learned last week that the iron beast is the sixth of the seven heads of Revelation 17. So far has anybody got that. Don't feel bad. But it says of the Antichrist that he is the seventh head and he's also the eighth. Now, as you study this, you will find that the sixth head is still in existence today. We are under, if you will, the auspices, under the umbrella of the sixth head of the seven heads of Revelation 17. The, seventh, the sixth head is the Roman Empire that is now into two sections, an east section and a west section. It will eventually become a ten-section Entity. It is not ten sections yet. It is only two. So that somebody who has wisdom will say, when will the Roman Empire become a ten section entity? And everyone has been watching. Those that are wise have been watching to see the sixth head become a ten uh, I don't know what to call each one of them, a ten state or a ten region um, universal system. So that's, the, but the Antichrist is called the seventh head. That, the Antichrist is, is what comes after the ten toad or the ten king or the ten horn system. He comes seventh. But it also says he's the eighth. 
And that's the mystery of the seventh and also the eighth. How can I have an eighth head when all I have is seven heads? How can he be the eighth when it says I only have seven? And that's the mystery of the seventh and also the eighth head of Revelation 17, right? And then the other thing is that the beloved city is Jerusalem. What is the significance of the location of the city that is Jerusalem? The world will fight over Jerusalem as it has for centuries. And it's going to get incredibly intense in our lifetimes, I believe. It has already been intense in our lifetime. In mine, I've watched it happen. 1948, before me, not much, unfortunately. 1967, I remember the 1967. 1972, I I remember uh, uh, Nasser and what he said. I remember when the highway was... Uh, no longer the highway between the Syrian, Jerusalem, and Egypt states. What is the significance of the location of Jerusalem? Why does God call it the beloved city, his beloved city? How is it again that the scarlet beast is the eighth head and also the seventh of the seventh head? And so ultimately what we're going to do is wrestle with those two today. So as we do that, what do we know? What are our known knowns? What are our unknown knowns? In other words, what do we know that we don't know? And then, do we know our unknown unknowns? That's a trick question. It's not possible to know our unknown unknowns, in case you want to know. What is the definition of unknown unknowns? They're unknown. We can't know the unknown. If it's unknown. Do unknown unknowns exist? Yes. They do. Of course. Okay, we know this. Sorry about that. The Antichrist. The man of sin. The red beast. The scarlet beast. The son of perdition. The seed of the dragon. The seed of the serpent. We know that he is going to die. He's going to die twice. How many other times does he die? We know of two. He's going to die, and he will resurrect, and the world will marvel and worship the red dragon, that's Satan, because the Antichrist dies and resurrects, the world will marvel and worship Satan. And the Antichrist. That's Revelation 13, 3 through 4. The world will worship the dragon and the beast and declare the beast to be unkillable. So let me repeat that. When the beast dies and is resurrected, the world will then worship Satan, will also then by extension worship the Antichrist and declare the Antichrist as unkillable. And they will declare him and Satan to be God. We have a billionaire uh, that is heavily involved in the political system from a communist perspective in this country that has decided for many, many years that he's God. He has what's called a God complex. Are you familiar with him? Probably are. People think they're God all the time. Hirohito thought he was God. He was worshipped as God. We have a, who's the dictator of a son? (sighs) Can't he? What's the guy in Korea? Help me out. Mm-hmm. Kim Hoon, yeah. He, he's, uh, he gets a hole-in-one on every golf course he goes on. 
He thinks he's God. And the people think he's God. There is no limit to the stupidity of human beings. Actually, there is. We're finite. But it's astonishing how, how stupid we are. But the beast will be worshipped and declared to be God after he resurrects. So we know that. That's a known number. And I, as an aside, notice all these names I gave you of the Antichrist, and I didn't even give you a, anywhere close to them. He's got all kinds of names. Ask yourself, why does he got, have all these names? What's the point of having all these names? What did all those names do? You can also ask the other side of the question, right? The other side of the question is, how many names does Christ have? Lots of names. The names of the Antichrist and the names of Christ have a specific purpose. And obviously the names are the primary means by which we identify the person. We know his names. We not only know his name, but we know his names. And we know why his names are his names. The names identify the person. They also provide a description of what the person will do and does. And it's important to identify the true I am, the true ancient of days, the ancient of uh, days, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and of course down here the beloved city. Now all of these are names of Christ, Prince of Peace, another name of His mighty God, Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ tells you all these names because they are attributes of him, but the number one attribute of Christ is that he is the I am outside of time, the always in the present. He sees time simultaneously. He's the ancient of days. He's the creator of time itself. He is the true Christ. And without knowing who Jesus Christ is, who he really is, who he actually is, nothing else is possible. You have to know that Christ is Creator God in the flesh. Once you have that, then you can start looking at the names and figure out what he's doing. Proverbs 30, verse 4, that's the great mystery. They said way back, what is the name of the second person of the triune Godhead? The name of the second person of the uh, triune Godhead is salvation. That's what Jesus means, right? It means salvation. Now we know his name, and that means we know what he's doing. So now, once you've got that, now, only now, is it practicable to pursue the solution to the 666. Everyone wants to talk about it. It's in all the movies. There are two things that you can identify as attributes of a wise person. The wise person will know uh, the seven heads, the iron mixed with clay, the ten horns, the abyss, the seventh and the eighth, the deadly wound, all of this stuff, the red harlot, the scarlet beast, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the dream of Daniel, the beasts of Daniel. The wise will know that. The wise will also know the meaning of the 666. Again, there's your wisdom test. Turn in your papers. We'll figure out who's wise and who's not. The ones that are wise will get closer parking spaces. They'll go first through the buffet table, as you know. Oh, what do we have today? Ooh, 
Oh, so we have Matt's chicken today, which is a good thing. So going first through the buffet table means more than it typically does to me. Okay. Once, if you're looking at the solution to the 666, the person of the Antichrist, the number of his name, that's what the Bible says. It is wisdom to know the number of his name. So the 666 is naming the Antichrist. That is ultimately what it's doing. It's identifying who he is, how long he has been, where he is, where he goes, what he is going to do. Okay, last week I asked, how is it that the Antichrist gets a mortal wound? What's the anatomy of the mortal wound, the steps? The Antichrist sustains a mortal head wound. So now we're going to flip over since we, you've all memorized last week's board. Oh, here it is again, almost the same thing. Let me get rid of it. The Antichrist, Revelation 17, 9, 17, 3, and 4, has a mortal wound. And the idiom is a Hebrew idiom, and it means death. He dies. It's a killing blow. And I asked, what caused it? What were the, what's the anatomy question? How do I solve the anatomy, the steps to this? So the first question is, he gets a mortal wound. What would you ask? You're the detective. Yeah, who did it? Who inflicted the killing blow to the Antichrist? Who kills the Antichrist? He is the scarlet beast. He is an incredibly formidable entity. Notice how I said that. He's extraordinarily powerful. Who can kill him? Somebody does. Who? Who kills him? How many kill him? How many does it take to inflict this wound that killed him? Who's available to kill the Antichrist? When does the Antichrist get killed? Where do you suppose the Antichrist was when the mortal wound was inflicted, struck, when he was struck dead? Pick a place. You can pick any place in the world. Do you think the Antichrist was killed in Spinard? Or will be? It's a possibility. You've been to Spinard lately. Okay. Where, no, where do you think he's going to die? When this is, he, remember, he dies and he is resurrected. Where? How close to the beloved city is he? How close to Jerusalem? Is he going to be killed in uh, Africa? Russia? No. Clearly, this is a Middle East situation, isn't it? What's your choices? Where was he when the mortal wound was struck? In other words, was the Antichrist in Israel? Yes or no? You make your decision. I'll keep going. If it was in Israel, if I concede the premise that he is killed in Israel, why was he in Israel? What's he doing? 
Where specifically was he in Israel if you decide he was in Israel? What was he doing in Israel? Was he in the beloved city Jerusalem? What else happened at the spot in history that he was killed at? He's killed at a spot. What spot? How smart is he? He's at a level of intelligence that we cannot comprehend. He picks a spot to die in and he dies there. Why would he do that? And what is that spot? Where else has something like this happened that might be the same spot? Does that make sense? If you have to ask, does that make sense? You're in trouble as a speaker. That's a joke, but happens to be one that applies to me and others. <laughs> Can't stop myself. What else happened at this spot? Assuming, assuming we can determine where the spot or the location of his death uh, is, that we can establish it. Okay, so we're having us some fun now, right? Maybe not. So what do we do to figure these kind of things out? What do we do? I want to know why the Antichrist got a mortal head wound. Mortal wound is a head wound. Why not hit in the heart? Why not? There are other places he can be mortally struck, right? But this is a mortal head wound. And clearly the the entire world knows it. Because the entire world is going to worship him because of this head wound. So where was he and who hit him? Who uh, managed to kill the Antichrist? So how do we solve that? By what method? Same method we always use, pinky. Same thing, right? That means I go in in the Old Testament. I have a New Testament problem. I have an Old Testament solution. What am I going to do in the Old Testament? Where am I going to go? You pick. Genesis is a wonderful place to pick. Genesis 3.15 is where it's first discussed. In Genesis 3.15, we are told that the Antichrist will have a mortal head wound. Now I have another question for you. How many mortal head wounds do you suppose the Antichrist gets? Do you know? Well, the way I'm going to solve it in Genesis 3.15 is where we will end up eventually, but we're going to go back someplace else. I'm going to look in the Old Testament for portraits of the Antichrist, of which there are many portraits of him. Lots of them. Dozens and dozens. And so where would you want to begin if you got to pick? And you don't get to pick. It's not even a rhetorical question. But if you could pick, let's imagine that I give you the possibility of picking, but it's not really true because I'm not going to do it. But let's assume for the sake of the argument that I have, where would you pick? If not Genesis 3.15. David and Goliath. Absolutely right. I would go to Goliath because he is... Extraordinary figure in the Bible with respect to the Antichrist. You might remember also from last Sunday the question of the mortal wound and its verification. In other words, the scarlet beast is slain. It's a head wound. The world marvels, which requires corroborative evidence. The world has to know that this is a head wound and the world has to know that the Antichrist is dead. That has to be 
there can be no doubt. This must be a fact without dispute. The entire world needs to know and have no doubt as to the death and the means of the man of, the, of sin. The testimony of this, I submit, is essential to Satan's plan. If this isn't, if this is thought to be uh, a fake death or a trick, there is no worship. It has to be real, and everyone must believe it's real. And I asked you last week, what is the nature of the head wound? What would convince you that I was dead? We had a joke at the railroad for many years. Uh, I've posted it on the board. I've probably said the joke, but I can't remember if I have or not, so that gives me the advantage of repeating it because I like the joke. Sorry about the audience, but the joke was on the board, uh, attention from the department of the general manager of the mechanical branch of the Alaska Railroad. Would the dead please it has come to our attention, I'm sorry, that the dead, those of you dying on the job, are failing to fall down, and it is therefore becoming indistinguishable between those who are working and the dead. We can't tell the difference, and that, uh, that I always thought was funny. I'm glad you left, both of you. That was really cool. point of it being is that the world has to know he's really dead. What would make you convinced that I was dead? Where you looked at me and said, that is death, there's no possibility he's faking it. What would make you convinced? And some of you thought of things, which is why what you thought, but I can't spoil it for the vast internet audience, that's why we are at Goliath. Okay? Some of you are ahead of me. Good for you. Again, the language used at Revelation 13.3 leaves no room for a fake death. It's the same idiom Hebrew phrase used for the crucifixion of Christ. If you're going to say that, the, that this is a counterfeit death in Revelation 13.3, then you are forced to say it is a counterfeit death with regard to the crucifixion. If you do that, no one is saved. You just have invalidated your own salvation. So this is absolutely real. And we're left with a, a cryptic problem. The eighth mystery is the mystery of the man of sin. Second Thessalonians 2, 7 through 9. This isn't easy. This is a mystery, a biblical mystery. There's 11 of them. As you know, this is the eighth of the 11. That's what we're talking about. This is, as Bill pointed out in the front row, not Bill the cow, Bill the fast, pointed out this is Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Seed means what? Offspring. Physical offspring. Not allegorical. Physical. If you do not recognize the seed of the woman ties to the seed of the serpent, then you do not have, you have invalidated the virgin birth and the humanity of Christ. If you invalidate the humanity of Christ, if you say it's allegorical, no one is saved. Two things required for you to be saved. Christ is God, creator, infinite God, and he is also fully perfect humanity. Perfect humanity. Any other position invalidates your salvation. There is no salvation if those two are, either one of those are affected. Perfect humanity, which means he had no fear, which means he had no sin. 
which means he had no indecision, which means he had no self-focus. Perfect humanity that is subject to infinite deity. Okay, got all of that, I hope. So the seed of the woman, it says in Genesis 3.15, will inflict death upon the head of the seed of the serpent. And so that's what we're talking about. We have a death head wound. Is this the place where the seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, inflicts a mortal head wound to the seed of the serpent? No, it's not. So you have to decide where is this seed of the woman killing the seed of the serpent with a head wound? Where does that occur? But this just happens to be the seed of the serpent having a mortal head wound. But it's not the seed of the serpent having a mortal head wound from the seed of the woman. Is that... I shouldn't ask again. <laughs> I can make the inference. <laughs> but we have a head and we also have a heel problem because the, the seed of the serpent in, is able to bruise the heel. Not a mortal wound, but a serious wound. The Antichrist is able to seriously wound Christ. How do you wound God? God is infinite spirit. And how do you wound him? What makes God cry? Weep? That's an important theological question. But for today, we have a head and a heel. They're obviously important details for us to resolve or dissolve, if you will. So we should search in the Old Testament for portrayals of the Antichrist that contain either the head or the heel or both, which then brings us to Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. Uh, Pretty much all of it, but but focus on the 48 through 58 for today. <coughs> Excuse me. David and Goliath. Famous story in movies, in cartoons, usually completely and horribly depicted, almost always biblically illiterate. Do not get your theology from cartoons or Hollywood or most churches, sad to say. David and Goliath. Goliath is this massive champion of the Philistines. He was an an Anakim, which means he's a giant. Now we're going to have to study Anakims. He's identified as an Anakim. Where else are they in the Bible? What are they? He's massive. We know that. But how massive is he? That causes the first question. How did giants become giants? What processes? What causes giantism? Where do we have gigantic creatures or humans? Goliath puts forth to Israel a proposition, 1 Samuel 17, 9. He says, send out, choose. Israel, we want you to choose. What is choice? It is free will. Once again, the Bible says that man has free will as opposed to the evolutionary atheist that says we do not. The Bible says definitively we have it. How much we have, we can argue about, but we definitely have it. 
And it's important that we have it. It's a condition of eternity or immortality or existence. You have to have free will to have existence. But anyway, Goliath says, choose a man to fight for you. Let him come down. Choose. Let him come down. Let him descend. Now we're back to Proverbs 30, aren't we? John 3. The ascension, the descension. That is the hypostatic union, the God and the man of Christ, right? So he says, let him come down to me. Goliath says to Israel, if he is able to fight with me, if he's able to fight with me, think about that. So that implies that some would not be able to fight with him. But that, he doesn't stop there. If he is able to fight with me and to kill me, so if he is able to fight, first he's got to be able to fight. Then he's got to be able to kill. It's a two-part equation. What we call X1. Have to be able to fight and have to be able to kill. Then we will be your servants. So you choose somebody, send him down to me, and if he is able to fight with me and to kill me, then we, who's the we here, will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then then you shall be ours and serve us. Now, what's Goliath thinking here? How confident is Goliath? And have you extended this out where it really belongs spiritually, right? This is a literally true event that has a spiritual extension to it. Who is the ours? Who's the us? What is Goliath thinking? We'll go back to the physical realm. What was Goliath thinking? What was his army thinking? They've got Goliath. Who you got? Do you have somebody who you can even send out? And the Israelis said, no, we really don't. And they just sat there and trembled. Goliath is clearly a type of the Antichrist. He's a blasphemer of the living God. He's a blasphemer of Israel. He is mocking God. He is mocking Israel in this and I haven't included it all. He's a giant that is, but know that, that's what he was doing. He's a giant that is a killing machine. All who saw him were fearful. None would even consider challenging him. He possesses unparalleled strength and power. It's hopeless to fight him. Who is like Goliath? Who is able to kill Goliath? The rhetorical question assumes a negative. Where did I get the question from? Revelation 17, 9, right? No, I'm sorry, 13, 3, and 4. I intentionally use the language that's applied to the Antichrist. The world says, after this mortal head wound that the Antichrist sustains, the world says, no one can kill this guy. He just got killed. But they say no one can kill him. He resurrects from a mortal head wound and everyone knows it and they say no one can kill him. Goliath, they're doing the same thing. Who can kill Goliath? Who can fight Goliath? No one can fight him. He's too powerful. Anyway, you know the story now, don't you, right? David is a what? What's he do? What's his job? 
My favorite story, Candid Camera, they got all these graduates from MIT, Caltech, Harvard, and Yale, and they put them through a system of of analysis to tell them what they're most equipped to do in life. And they told uh, four or five of them, we have determined based on all this testing that you should be a shepherd. It was hilarious. They thought politician. But a shepherd is far more intelligent than the political class. So they should have been. They should have been. They should have recognized the compliment. A shepherd comes out. We're going to fight Goliath with a shepherd. And it isn't a fair fight, is it? Because the scarlet beast is going to come out. And what's going to go up against the scarlet beast? A lamb. Bah. And it's not a fair fight. The lamb of God is omnipotent. And the scarlet beast knows it. But again, I have a shepherd coming out, but not any shepherd. This is a shepherd. David was a shepherd who saved lambs from the mouth of a lion and a bear, 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 35. And he runs immediately at the giant. His job, as he sees it, is to attack. And he runs. And uh, he has uh, a weapon. He strikes Goliath in the head with a stone. In other lectures in the past, I've considered the feet per second of the stone because it's told to me in the scripture that it's sunk into the head of the giant. I'm going to call the giant something else. I'm going to say it's sunk into the head of the Nephilim. How's that for fun? That'll get me some mail. Okay, I'll throw in Ham's wife. More mail for me. But you guys know where I'm going. The giant has a helmet on his head. How big is his head? How big is the helmet? How thick is his head? How thick is the helmet? Does the helmet cover his forehead? Because the Bible says the stone sunk into his forehead. How deep did it sink in? Did the stone kill him? Let's assume that the stone is, you know, maybe two and a half inches in diameter. How, what's the feet per second that thing has to travel to sink in? Go through a helmet. Let's assume it goes through the helmet just to make it difficult. How fast it got to go? What's the helmet made out? Thickness of the helmet. How thick is the forehead? It's got to penetrate. What's the feet per second? It's a physics question. My favorite kind. How did that? How did he do that? How did David do that? Can that helmet stop an arrow, a spear? Does the helmet protect the forehead? The forehead. The giant is hit in the forehead. You think that's an accident? That the giant has a head wound, and the Antichrist has a head wound. I have two. Giants, two champions of evil, both of them have a head wound, as opposed to being, say, hit, he's, he's hit in the forehead, as opposed to being hit in the right hand. Anyway, I just, I digress. The giant is quickly rendered helpless. He's hit in the, in the forehead, and he is dropped. And what does David do? He takes his sword out, 
and he beheads him. Now, do you believe Goliath is dead? Because David has his head. There are estimates that Goliath's head weighed upwards of 20 pounds. David's got it. And he's got his sword. So far, so good. Who else believes that Goliath is dead? As soon as he cuts the head off, who believes that Goliath is dead? His entire army does, don't they? They know without a doubt this, this giant is a dead giant. Not good news for the Goliath guys. They start pulling their t-shirts off. Throw their hats away, right? And David takes the head and he carries it into the beloved city, Jerusalem. How close was the death of Goliath to the beloved city? Why does he carry it to the beloved city? Eventually, as you know, it is buried on a hill. And the name of the hill is Gaul, Goliath. Uh, can you spell it? God, Goliath, uh, something like that. Gaul, Goliath, G O L. Ah, Gaul, Goliath. And you know it as Golgotha. Or the place of Goliath's skull. That, and uh, of course, the place of Goliath's skull is the exact place that Christ made sure his cross was there, and so he is on top of Goliath's skull. The mountain isn't doesn't look like a skull. Never did. It's the place where Goliath's skull was buried. David took it there, and that spot and Christ's crucifixion are the same spot. It's somewhere in Jerusalem. What else happened on that spot? Why did Christ choose it? He made sure that there, nobody could go anywhere but that spot in his crucifixion. But you know all of that, okay? So, let's recap a little bit. Goliath was beheaded. Next thing to look at is Judas dies. Acts 1, 15 through 20. How does Judas die? I moved on. Now I'm adding Judas because I like getting mail from people. He also dies, Acts 1, 15 through 20, and we should read that. I don't have time. Okay, I ain't got to make time. Hurrying now, in case you wonder. I'll read it for you, because I am a highly trained professional. I can find it. Usually I have it marked ahead of time. Not today. Okay. Peter. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether a number of names was about a hundred and twenty, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. What question do you ask now? What scripture is he talking about? Which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David says something given to him by the Holy Spirit that concerns Judas. David's a guy that killed Goliath and cut his head off. He also has something to say about Judas. What should you ask? What is the relationship between Judas and Goliath? Peter seems to know. Who became a guide 
to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. Uh Uh-oh. He falls headlong. Forehead. Mortal head wound. Judas falls headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. How many people are in Jerusalem? Everybody knows about the death of Judas. How big a city Jerusalem? Hundreds of thousands on a non-feast day. Feast day explodes, right? People come from all over the world. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. Judas makes sure that he dies in the field of blood. What else has happened on that field? What else occurred? What was he doing? He buys it. Judas buys it. Judas falls headlong. He bursts open in the middle. All of his entrails gush out. And the scripture was fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 69.25. Psalm 69.28. Psalm 109. To resolve Acts 1-15 through requires to connect it to Psalm 69. Psalm 109. And it's not simple. Many people think it is simple. It's not. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Psalm 69, 28. has something to do with the book. One of the books. It's a very arduous undertaking. We won't do it today. Just for today. Goliath was beheaded. Judas fell headlong and burst open. Both of it happened in Jerusalem in the sense Goliath's head is taken there. Never, never, never concede the intellect of Satan and Judas. When Judas is buying that field, who's inside of him? Satan is in there. I have a combining of Satan and Judas. He buys a field. It's a collaborative work. They're cooperating. Why does Satan and Judas want this field? Why did they pick this one? Judas wants to die here. And he dies in such a way that his entrails come out and he hits head first. Is he dead? They named the field the field of Judas's blood. Everybody's pretty sure he's dead. Okay, I got Judas split open. Who else split open in the Bible? Where should we go next? You get to pick as long as you pick what I want. Who else was split open? Come on, you can do this. What's that? John the Baptist was beheaded. I'm I'm moved on to split open now. But excellent point. Fantastic point. Because once you start finding a beheaded Goliath, you're going to wander through the Bible and find all the beheadeds. Very important. What was what was John the Baptist's primary job? Never mind, because I'll get back to Goliath and I don't want to. Somebody else was split open. Find me a split open person. Who? Huh? Ab- Absalom was hit with a spear, yes. But I want to find somebody. Very good. Absalom is a type of the Antichrist. What's that? <sighs> now, now you're... 
No, I don't believe he was in this sense. Not in the sense that it would apply to Judas. I'm going to help. I'm going to go. The Romans did it. As you are likely aware, the Romans employed, i got to hurry, certain procedures whenever they deemed it necessary. Someone was assigned in a Roman execution detail to stab a crucified person. It was his job. If they had a man that was being crucified and it was determined the process needed to be expediently advanced and they decided that the process was not sufficient to accomplish that, they they weren't being merciful, make no mistake. They decided this is the time to split the person open so that what would happen to him? He would burst his entrails. All of that would occur. So Judas seems to know that. How smart is Judas? He is the only person of whom it is said has Satan himself inside of him. Perhaps the the foremost uh, aspect of Adam's typology of Christ is the entry through Adam's side. The word says "sella." It's usually translated rib. It's not rib, it's side. When God reaches inside of Adam, he builds Eve with that material. Christ was stabbed in the side by a Roman soldier specifically assigned to do this job. He had to be a little bit afraid, if you've heard me lecture on this before, because lots of cool things were happening. None of which the Romans thought was cool. But his job was to take the spear. Start thinking about the spear. How big is the head of the spear? How sharp is it? What's its purpose? How high was Christ? How long is the spear? It's designed to split him open. He's God. And Christ is stabbed in the side. Let me rephrase that. He's God. God has to allow a Roman soldier to participate in the ripping open of his side. It's a bursting. The spear probably went two feet deep. He's got a, he's, typically they, they would stab through the body up into the neck. To, and they just rip him to pieces. That's the plan. God has to allow that to happen because how do you drive a nail, much less a spear, through the omnipotent God, right? But anyway, the spear, uh, there's this evidence there in John of the outpouring, the bursting, it says, of blood. The point being that Jesus Christ and Judas were torn, extensively torn. Ask why. What else is torn in the Bible? The veil. Yes, good for you. There's a clue. What does it mean for God to be torn like this? What is Christ teaching us? Process, process that while i got to return to Goliath's beheading for a second. Why did David behead Goliath with his own sword? Because David didn't have a sword. He only had stones in a sling. So why did David do this? Well, he wanted to kill him. He wasn't quite dead yet, or at least he wanted to prove to the Philistines that he is dead now. Okay? No, Goliath may be the most preeminent type of the anti- Christ in the Old Testament. And I I side with those who declare that to be the case. The shepherd beheads the monster. Clearly David left no doubt that the beast was dead. Goliath's armies fled in fear. And I believe the pattern repeats. One side will be certain that their monster cannot die. Revelation 
13, 3 and 4. Their monster cannot be defeated. The other side will have the shepherd, the lamb. So, what kind of mortal head wound does the scarlet beast heal from? That makes the world marvel, makes the world worship Satan, the red dragon, and worship the beast. What specific proof convinces the world to worship the dragon and his seed, his offspring? And when does the mortal head wound occur? How many head wounds does the Antichrist have? How many resurrections? Which is the head wound of Genesis 3.15? 666 is three sixes. Duh. Three is a number of the triune Godhead. It is also a number of resurrection. Six is the number 666, the Antichrist. I have a great joke about relatively certain being a relative term. Anyway, I can't do it. I, we are relatively certain, and by we I mean me, that there are at least two resurrections of the Antichrist. Here at Revelation 13.3 and at Revelation 19.20. Christ kills the Antichrist and then he resurrects him. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 in order to... to put him in the lake of fire, resurrected. So that's two resurrections. One at 13, three of Revelation, one at 19.20 of Revelation. So we know we have two resurrections. So what's the obvious question left? Do I have three resurrections of the Antichrist? I got two. Would that be a way to identify him? Find somebody that has been resurrected three times. So which of those two resurrections would you nominate as the seed of the woman bruising or crushing the head of the Antichrist? Which one would you pick of those two? Revelation 19.20, Revelation 13.3. You pick. And, there, and therefore, where would be the third resurrection of the 666? It's wisdom to calculate it, right? Obviously, I think I found the third resurrection, but I'll let you search for yourself. As a clue, most, uh, most translations with regard to the third resurrection use the word fell. It isn't there as you look. The word is died. Are you raising your hand for a reason back there? Okay, good. Put it back down. Okay, Revelation 13.3. Revelation, I'm sorry, is the resurrection of the Antichrist is a mid-tribulational event. It happens in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. I have, a, I have things that happen in the middle. We're going to have to get through them. This is one of the things. So, the seventh kingdom is divided into how many pieces? Two. This would be the seventh. This would be the eighth. And the middle is the resurrection. So, he's the seventh and he's the eighth. What is the determining factor? The mortal head wound and his resurrection. Of course, that's not... Uh, you know, that solves the seventh and, and also the eighth. The seventh is pre-resurrection. The eighth is post-resurrection. That's not concise language. I hope you know that. The seventh is pre-second post-first resurrection. And the eighth is post-second resurrection and pre-third resurrection. You'll figure that out later. Finally, finally, which is the favorite word here. 
cliffside that make him stop. I have two trees. I have life, tree of life and tree of surely die. They're in the garden. The dragon, Satan, the serpent, ultimately intended for Adam. He was after Adam. Eve is only a mechanism to get to Adam. He wants to kill Adam. Doesn't care about Eve. Why is that? So he got, he has to get Adam to take from the tree of life after he has taken from the tree of surely die. After he's poisoned, he needs him to go to the tree of life so that he stays poisoned for all eternity. But God steps in and puts a barrier between Adam and the tree of life so that Adam does not go to the tree of life. And Adam put up a barrier to keep Eve from going to the tree of life. Adam was the barrier for Eve. God was the barrier for Adam. So the question becomes, how far apart is the tree of life from the tree of death? How close are they? It's impossible, in my view, to have the view that they are side by side. They're a reasonable distance apart. There are two views that I'll give you today. There's more than these two. View number one for today, a lot more than this one, not the only one, it's not two views, hundreds of views. Today, this one. Some say one of the trees is in Babylon and the other tree is in the beloved city, Jerusalem. Some say, no, 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 that's wrong. They'll say that one tree was at Golgotha, Golgoliatha. And the other tree was at the field of blood. You get to figure out which one of those you think is wrong, or both, next week, if you're still here. And that's not a given. The way this world has fallen apart, you might want to call first. If you're still here and everybody else is gone, get on this get on the 17-9. You're running out of time, huh? Okay, I'm stalling as best I can. Okay, here's where ceremoniously with great pomp, tradition and circum what is it? What is it? circumstance. Yes, thank you. You stand.